Are you in a state of recovery? Do you want more clarity and direction? Have you built your foundation and wonder what lies beyond recovery? Do you want to discover what you are truly capable of? And are you ready to discover your purpose, learn to overcome your limiting beliefs, and change your mindset? Are you ready to discover the key to living a purpose-driven life? When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, and strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost, but our journey doesn't have to stop there. This is the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. After overcoming my own 20-year battle of addiction to drugs and alcohol, I have now dedicated my life to empowering those in recovery to rewire their brain so they can change their story and enhance their recovery even further. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. Let's kick it off with a little gratitude. Today, I am grateful for my mindfulness practice. Now, this is something that I do every morning. You know, I do my prayer, I do my meditation. And one of the things that I'm really working on is taking a time out during the day and doing a little bit more because, uh, you know, some days are overwhelming. You know, the, the holiday, like I mentioned previously, can be a difficult time of the year. Uh, for me personally, I've had a lot of things going on this year and I've just felt incredibly drained and emotional for the last couple weeks as I'm recording these episodes. And so I had, you know, called my good friend Lane Kennedy, uh, who we just completed our masterclass, which I'll share the link shortly. But she is an expert at mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, if you haven't checked out her podcast, it's called The Connected Calm Life. So if you need a little mindfulness in your day, make sure you check out her show. But we were talking about just having that ability to kind of step back um, and slow down, you know, because I am that A-type personality. When I have my mind on something, I like to give it everything I got. And sometimes that can lead to burnout. You know, I've experienced it many, many times in my recovery. And so just having the ability to kind of calm down, to step back and just take care of myself and doing that through meditation, I find that it lowers my stress, right? It, it takes my mind off things. It also allows me to refocus and I just feel better after I do it. You know, um, last night I did some emotional eating and it happens from time to time. And so today, honestly, feeling a little rough. <laughs> and, you know, so I woke up, I did my mindfulness um, practice, but I took some extra time today to take advantage of that and do a little bit more. And so I am incredibly grateful that this is an area that I continue to work on. I continue to develop because this journey is never really over, right? And it's a wonderful journey. So uh, speaking of my friend, Lane Kennedy, her and I got together. We did a six session Change Your Brain Masterclass It's phenomenal. Go check it out. There are six activities to help you literally change your brain. And Lane has done 
six incredible meditations that focus on each topic for you to embed the concepts even further into your subconscious mind. We talk about purpose, belief systems, mindset, emotional intelligence, priming your brain, and of course, brain health, neuroplasticity, which is my favorite word, as you know. And then to kick things off, or sorry, to wrap things up, not kick things off, uh, to wrap things up, we added a 21-day challenge and you're in for a treat. So every day you're going to get an email and a little quote, an inspirational quote, and also an action item, something that you could do, something simple that is going to have you changing your brain. And don't miss out. You can head on over to the website at www.theroadforward.ca slash change your brain. Super simple. You can also go to the main part of the website. Scroll down below. There will also be a link there. And uh, Lane also has a new community. So I'm going to be putting that in the show notes as well. So some exciting things going on. You don't want to miss out. Today on the show, we have another amazing guest, my friend Sterling Shrout. We dive into his story and how he overcame addiction. We talk about what the key has been to him staying clean and sober. We talk about some vision planning exercises and also a recovery mastermind that he's involved with. And we talk about what he's doing today because he's got all sorts of of exciting things going on. He's a guest on many podcasts and it was just great to speak to him. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everybody. We are hanging out today with my friend Sterling Shrout. How are you doing, Sterling? I'm good, Tamar. Thanks for having me and good to see you again. You too. So grateful to have you on the show and get to share your story because like we've talked about you know, I think our experience can really benefit other people. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do today? Absolutely. So my name is Sterling Shrout. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. I'm 30 years old. Um, starting farther back, um, up until 28, from 15 to 28, I was um, on probation, parole, incarcerated in a rehabilitation program, uh, just some... Uh, point in the you know criminal justice system or uh yeah so kind of skipping through that briefly uh first it was selling drugs when I was a teenager uh, that was my it's like the only way I figured out to make quick money uh that ended in an arrest and then uh by the time I was 19 I figured out how to sell more drugs I guess um so really not moving in a good direction it doesn't actually get better for a while um so that ended up in a three-year mandatory prison sentence. Uh, so all of 19, or no, all of 2021 and 22, uh, I was incarcerated. Uh, getting out of there, uh, it still didn't have anything going for me. I didn't really learn too many good things in, in the joint, as you would expect, I think. Or uh, Yeah, so that comes down to getting out, trying to have a healthy lifestyle. And um, I couldn't get a job at a fast food uh, place because of my record. Uh, the way that it's worded, even though it's nonviolent or, uh, you know, no direct um, victim, most of my charges start with aggravated uh, or dangerous um, because of bulk amounts or, 
you know, things associated with it. So after the like last resort uh, didn't work out, I kind of just realized, or I felt that I was rejected by society. I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to do what I want um, or whatever I feel like doing. It definitely wasn't what I wanted, but just do whatever. So I never really sold drugs again, but then I started using them. And that ended up being a way that I coped with um, lack of education, lack of uh, opportunity, uh, economic advantages, things like that. So when I started really using drugs and that's when like heroin comes into the picture, crack cocaine, um, stuff like that, uh, it resulted in, you know, homelessness, sleeping in an abandoned house, um, committing crimes to feed that habit, uh, the kind of the usual things with, with that extreme. And, uh, 2016, 2015, I, uh, went to the Salvation Army in Tampa, Florida, uh, partially to run from a, a minor felony I'd committed. And, no, it was actually all to run from that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then it just happened to be like a really good place for recovery. Uh, they took me in as a, you know, homeless person, basically. Um, I spent a year in that program living there, six months in the program, and then another six months uh, still living there, getting my stuff together, working for them, though. And then I moved out, got a place, and I uh, continued to work there. That two years sober ended up landing or ending in a relapse, which amazing how quick you go back to, you know, the old, the last place you left off, basically. So... You know, knowing that I wanted to be sober, but like not being able to do it at that point, uh, that's a difficult headspace to be in. But from there, basically came back to Ohio and that would have been 2000, uh, late 2017, uh, the end of the year, beginning of 2018, uh, managed to stay sober a little bit, tried to get that court case wrapped up now that I had some papers that look, you know, stuff that looked good on paper at least, um, it didn't go as planned. So I had like quarter million dollar bond, a bunch of probation, jail time and programs and whatever. So I got locked back up for some months. Um, anyways, I had started that education and started, I had that desire to, to change, to not, you know, be completely, you know, dependent on drugs and slowly had made progress. Um, the relapses started to get shorter and shorter uh, until the last time I used uh, was for about two weeks, and this would have been the beginning of August 2019. That ended in an overdose, and it was a kind of a rough one, I guess. I only have one to compare it to, but it, it wasn't good. We'll put it that way. Uh, that gave me the realization that I didn't want to die. Like, I really don't want to die. Fully enjoy living. Um, so that gave me a direction to go. It's like, all right, well, I know for sure I don't want to die. So if I'm going to be alive and like at this point, you know, my son was uh, six months old, didn't want to leave him behind, things like that. So now I had to figure out where to go from there. And you know, I use uh, medicated, uh, medically assisted treatment, Suboxone, to I had already been on it actually at that point for a few months, but I was I went back to that after the relapse and I used that to kind of build routines and just start to get some semblance of, of normal. And from there, I managed to save up a couple bucks from uh, building an arcade for a, my brother-in-law. 
And then I Googled, you know, how do you invest $3,000 to get out of poverty? And that led to a podcast with which just kind of blew my mind wide open. And I just started getting as educated as possible and doing whatever I was told to do. That's awesome. And yeah, podcasts are amazing. I love the space because I too, when I needed motivation, I started listening to podcasts and I'm like, I can't believe how much there's out there. Now, you know, going back to when I share my story, I always like to share about how it was like growing up because um, I think that there is this, you know, perception that you have to have a traumatic childhood to fall into addiction. And that wasn't my story, but I know it is for many people. But I want to bring more of an understanding that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. There can be traumas in our lives that happen and we like i drank because of my inability to handle my emotions right that was why when i drank for the first time it led to drugs because it gave me a sense of peace it numbed everything out and we all have that same experience but i think of how we get there is all a little bit different like we all have our unique stories that's why i feel it's important so what was life like growing up for you and what led you to the first time you had used so yeah, I did technically grow up in poverty. Um, I was born in a trailer park and you know, spent most of my childhood there and then moved out to Montana, like the middle of nowhere, which is, you know, looking back, I like it, but whatever. Um, moved out in the middle of nowhere, but that was also extreme poverty. Like when you, I think a lot of us, you know, we get used to our surroundings, we adjust, we adapt, and, you know, you may not look at things in a super negative light and they may not be that negative, but when you compare it to, um, you know, like statistics or averages or anything like that, it's like, Oh wow, we were, we were poor. So I was raised by my mom. Uh, my parents split up when I was younger, uh, about five years old, six years old. Um, there was never, you know, I wasn't abused. Um, I wasn't necessarily beaten outside of, you know, <laughs> Whatever, personal choice. Um, I don't think I was, you know, excessively beaten or anything. I was probably a bad, you know, rough kid, a lot of energy. So, mm-hmm. um, but I did grow up in a in a different kind of religious setting. So while it's still Christian, it's Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have anything bad to say about them. You know, just like anybody, you know, anything has their bad people, but overall, they're really kind, really nice people. Um, but the super strict Christian, you know, no tattoos, no drugs, no drinking, no smoking, um, no cussing, no holidays, no birthdays, a lot of no's. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but that's what, you know, to that religion, that's what gets you to heaven. That's a horrible way to word it. But um, so I grew up with that religion, but it also gave me a perception that all this was temporary. So, you know, a big emphasis they put on is not being worldly is the term. So uh, we didn't associate with people outside of the religion. We didn't uh, participate in things at school, things like that. So that there was some separation there. And then moving out to Montana, I think my graduating class had 90 kids in it in high school. I didn't graduate, but for reference. Um, (laughs) So already, uh, you know, that was my normal and, you know, it kind of stayed away, put me on the edge. And I was also a new kid in seventh grade. 
Um, then from there to Colorado, back to Ohio, to Montana, moved around a lot. Um, and so I, I did get to stay there for all of high school. But the the relationships that I developed were the kids that were maybe on the fringe of, of uh, groups or whatever. Um, and then basically my stepfather out there, he was a raging alcoholic. And I've never had a problem with alcohol, and it might be – thanks to him. Um, but a lot of his other stuff, um, his perception of society and like say law enforcement, a lot of things like that. I catch myself. I mean, still with these same ideas, I don't necessarily know that they're all wrong or all, um, super abnormal or unjustified or whatever, but, um, it, it's weird to see parallels as you get older with, with the things you're raised around. So, I wasn't taught, um, yeah, how to function in society because it didn't matter. We were separate from society. Right. Uh, I just had to exist until the uh, world ended, basically. So it's a really, it's a strange place to uh, raise a family now from. It's like, wow, I would never tell my kids that. It's not happening. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I bet. And, you know, it's interesting because do you find um, – when you have all these restrictions, right? Because I also actually had friends in high school who were Jehovah Witness and I would hear everything that, you know, they're, what she believed and, you know, I wasn't allowed over and stuff like that. And I actually watched her really start to rebel, right? When she was old enough to go, wait a minute, I want to do this, this, and this. And so she started doing that. And it's interesting because for me, my parents were European, so drinking was acceptable. They never told me I couldn't, but I still went that way, right? So it didn't it didn't matter for me that I wasn't restricted and a friend of mine was. We both went the same directions. Um, do you find that, you know, for you, being restricted um, to certain things kind of made you want to act out and rebel, or do you think that didn't play a part in it? It, it definitely did. I, like the first time I smoked weed, for example, um, it's like, oh, you know, like they lied. Like this is not you know, the devil's <laughs> lettuce. Um, like what else did they lie about? You know, and, and it was things like that. Um, and I don't want to put blame on my older brother, but like smoked weed with him. And it's like, oh, well, he, he left. He smokes weed. He's fine. Um, you know, it's not, I didn't die. So it's not as bad as they said. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that definitely had an influence though. Um, Cause then, you know, the, the biggest role models in your life are giving you these like pillar level, uh, ideas, like foundation level ideas. And then you realize like, Oh, they're just making stuff up, uh, apparently. And then it kind of just, you know, kind of has a fracturing effect on it had, a, you know, on my reality at least. So. Absolutely. Now <clears throat> you went through a lot within your addiction and, um, you know, when you say that you finally decided to stop because you didn't want to die. And I think a lot of us will get to that point. You know, I always said I was a, I had hit many low bottoms. I was incredibly suicidal, especially towards my bottom when I decided to stop drinking. But on the outside for me, it looked like I had my life together, right? It was like I had the marriage, I had the job, I had all this stuff, but I was so financially, spiritually, mentally bankrupt that I just didn't want to live. And I had this moment where I was like, wait a minute, maybe I'm put here for a bigger reason. So, you know, 
early recovery was difficult, right? Because I had to learn how to feel emotions. Like that sucked. I think I cried my first year of sobriety more than I ever had in my entire life. So, you know, what was early recovery like for you? I know you said that, you know, you were using Suboxone to make sure to kind of stable out, get those habits developed. But what did early recovery look like for you? Yeah, so I didn't honestly know I really had a drug problem going into rehab. Like I said, the, that was um, that was a way to not go to jail or back to prison. I was still on parole at that time. And getting there, having to detox while working, and I snuck my way through that, you know, cheating a piss test or whatever. And um, yeah, the, like getting to be around other people in recovery or trying to get better or that have been better for years or things like that. I started to see these examples, these parallels in my life. And I'm like, Oh shit, I'm going to have a, that might be a problem. Uh, you know, things like that. And then also I had never seen people from a situation that, that I came from actually get better. You know, all the friends I had were still strung out or still poor or, um, it's like, you know, nothing to look up to. So I, I got role models in there and that was big for me. Um, with that was, that was where my foundation in recovery was, was set for sure. That's where I got the first, um, after that first relapse and then being able to look back at the life I had, I didn't have any material gains. I didn't, you know, I was renting a bedroom from somebody's mom somewhere and you know so whatever like 10 bucks in my pocket on a good day um i was still happy i was still mentally clear and healthy and enjoyed life um and so getting right back into the grips of addiction and i don't know how i want to be like super graphic or whatever but yeah um just go there. This is real. Uh, you know, stabbing yourself in the back seat of a blazer at a gas station. It's 95 degrees out and, you know, crack cocaine mania. Like that is hell. That was horrible. And being able to just look at where I had been, uh, like the best physical shape of my life and, and happy with friends that like real friends, things like that. So, um, then trying to get better and not being able to and like knowing that there's there's this missing piece that I kept trying, you know, different routes and like continue getting educated and um, trying to catch myself before I you know, did too much or did something I wouldn't bounce back from or a crime that would put me away for another decade or something. So that that is early recovery, I guess. And the things from that, as far as you, I just want to say something with the, you hit on really strong with the emotions. Um, yeah. Prison made me like really cold, really mean, um, very anti society and people and just all that very negative, hostile environment. Um, I started to get some of myself back in that first recovery program too. Um, and then even, you know, looking forward to like the beginning of this year, um, letting myself feel uh, the little accomplishments from this past year and like slowing down for a second and like, you know, like 
taking it. And that's, there's, there's levels to the emotional. So I'm sure there's a hundred more, but um, just with getting sober and the, you know, feeling emotions and processing things. Um, and then after you've remained there for a while, it's an ongoing thing for sure. I just want to touch on that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Emotions is a big deal because I don't think people realize that, you know, one of the topics I teach on is emotional intelligence. And when we can develop strong emotional intelligence, that can actually unlock our untapped potential. And I think that's something that we learn how to do in early recovery is feel those emotions because we're so good at numbing everything out, right? We just don't want to feel. And so, you know, from for me, it was from the age of 14 to 36. I didn't know how to deal with anything without picking up a bottle or using a drug. Like I just thought as soon, oh, this feeling's not good. You know, we're just going to get wasted or loaded. And so, you know, you had mentioned relapse and, you know, I talk about that, you know, relapse has not been a part of my story yet. And I say yet because I know that if I go back into old behaviors that could slip in or if I even life gets too good and I start basically neglecting the things that kept me sober in the first place that could also take me back out so you know for you know relapse is a part of your story what caused you to keep slipping back it's a good question (laughs) um to me a lot of it was relationships that i didn't let go of um i got examples for days of that um getting out of prison and hanging out with the old people I was hanging out with. Now they're doing heroin because that's the thing to do. Um, Montgomery County, Ohio, opioid epidemic. Um, and then, you know, Florida, um, some of my best friends in there in that rehab program relapsing and then thinking that I've got my stuff together enough that it's like, oh, I'll be fine. They're shooting Dilaudids. Yeah, I just won't do it. You know, that didn't pan out super hot. Um, and then actually, I don't regret this one or I don't regret any of it, I guess, because it got me here, but moving back to Ohio, that was a relationship that I'd been in since 2009 and that's a positive now or whatever. Um, but I, when I'd moved right back to her, when I moved back to Ohio, I, I was sober, hadn't used in a little while. Um, she was still using like pain pills basically. And and it's like, Oh, I can do a Percocet. And then it's like straight to, you know, straight to heroin. Um, and, uh, a false sense of security or, uh, you know, ego, ego would be a really good word for it is letting my ego like be in control all the time and, uh, kind of running on autopilot. Um, goes back to the you know emotional check-ins and so one of the things i use today i uh, really care about my kids so i have my son he's two and a half and then adeline was three when i moved back up and um she's seven now so when i don't feel the ability to connect with them when i feel like i'm pushing myself away or pushing them away or i don't feel just like a flowing part of the family. I always, that's like a big red flag for me to look at what I'm doing. Where am I putting my time, my energy, my intention, things like that. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I've just personally identified in my own life as a good point to, uh, for a quick check-in. So, yeah. 
That's fantastic. And I mean, I think who we surround ourselves with, right? That's important. I mean, when I got clean and sober, I had to change everything because I would want to go back and be like, well, it's okay. Like I can hang out at this house party and be totally fine. And actually the first time I did that, I, you know, because alcohol was my drug of choice. And once I drank, everything else came into play. But I remember bringing a six pack of Diet Coke with me and I sat there and I matched them drink for drink. Now, drinking six Diet Cokes in an hour is not healthy. It's not good. And I was jittery, right? Because I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm doing the same things I was doing. I'm just not using. Eventually, it's going to lead back, right? Mm -hmm. And not being ready or not realizing that, okay, I can't do this again, right? Because you touched on that, that it was like, okay, well, I could do this. Like, that'll be okay. But it's amazing how quickly we revert back into, you know, cause I had tried to quit before, but I would never say I got clean and sober. You know, it'd be like, I'd make bets. Like I can go, I can go without a drink for 30 days, but then I would want to shout it from the rooftops and nobody who doesn't have a drinking problem has to sit and brag about the fact <laughs> they haven't drank for a few days. Right. They just yeah. don't. <laughs> that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> and now looking back, like when I was like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Like there's no way, like I'm just, you know, I've, I've, you know, I didn't have my shit together at all. But when I look at those things, I'm like, that was insane behavior on my part. Like nobody does that. I remember even when I got, you know, I had met um, the woman actually who brought me into recovery to the time where I actually came into recovery. I was recording because she was a personal trainer. I was recording my, my food and I was drinking nine beers every weekend. So three, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but I was also drinking half a bottle of NyQuil. But I remember bragging on Monday, I only had nine beers this weekend. And she's like, mm-hmm, you know, so being for someone in recovery is like, good for you, but you're working out seven days a week and you're going excessively with this stuff and you're keeping yourself busy so you can't drink. You're just swapping one addiction to another. So it's yeah. interesting, our behavior. So what would you say for you now has been the key to keeping you clean? So, <clears throat> I mean, the foundation of it, or the, I keep using that word, the, uh, one of the first things that sparked change and sparked um, what I feel is a more permanent change is like having something to look forward to. So I can't ever say that I was excited about the future. Um, like five years from now, I intend on having accomplished A, B, and C. It was like, oh, I might, you know, uh, might be dead. I might, whatever, you know, it was really negative prior. Um, so for me, it was, uh, it was a vision planning exercise, like a specific incident that like sparked all kinds of stuff. But it was looking out to when you're like 90 years old and where are you going to be? Who's there? What's it like? What's it smell like? What, you know, uh, what's it feel like? And writing that out was the first time that I ever felt like I could be worthy of that or like that was possible. So for me, it was like cabin in the woods, a couple generations of like healthy people, um, you know, underneath me or whatever, um, kids, grandkids, like functioning and communicating and like, uh, all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I can, you know, I can picture that that's all fine and well, but actually like trying to like experience it or put myself there 
um, that like broke me down like uh, emotionally and I don't know if I'd ever defined it that clearly, but from there moving forward, I didn't feel like I was just going to like leave my kids to fend for themselves or I didn't necessarily know how to make that happen. I still, you know, I have a rough idea of the direction to go, but you know, all kinds of things change. Um, <clears throat> but that gave me, you know, back to like, at first it was, I knew I didn't want to die. All right. That's the direction. Don't die. Um, then after that, it's like, well, I want the end game to look roughly like this, just kids that are healthy and, you know, be old and alive and you know, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so now I had another direction to go to or go in. And then what kind of cemented that was the relationships I started to build. So I had, had a couple local relationships with like a couple old bosses and people that I never really understood what they did. And now we're working together on stuff and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so building started to build those relationships and leverage those relationships. And then the education part, um, I just consumed as much information as possible. And it was like, how has nobody taught me, you know, how to make money or how to spend my, how money even works, you know, like no wonder I've struggled so hard. Um, and so once I started to figure that out and I started to see small results, um, kind of knew there was something there too. So that that's those relationships, um, goals, vision planning, let's start that over goals, vision planning, then relationships, and then just education, financial, um, recovery, uh, emotional, like exposing yourself to new ideas or exposing myself to new ideas. And, um, yeah, it's all love it yeah i'm the same way i'm like a sponge now and i used to think i wasn't smart like i'm like well i barely graduated high school i did make it but i remember my english teacher told me if you fail your final exam and you're here again next year i'll make your life a living hell like that was how i was in high school right and so i grew up thinking well i'm not smart like i'm not meant out to learn things or to teach things and i found out that that was completely false and I love how you talk about vision because when I finally, because I had become very complacent in about my sixth, seventh year of recovery. And I was like, okay, I feel like I meant for something more. I just have no idea what that is. Like there's got to be a reason I've lived through everything I had because really we are miracles, right? There are a, a ton of times where I could look back and go, I shouldn't be alive today, but I'm here. So I'm here for a reason. Do you believe that your experience and what you've been through is now really like a, a gift you can use to help others? I, I mean, I 100% believe it's something that I, I feel personally responsible to try to help other people and not in the sense of like giving or, you know, whatever. Um, but, but the fact that I can relate to people that have been locked in a cage for, you know, specifically like an actual cage for like 36 days, but then, you know, human warehousing for three years or, um, you know, serious drug use and like really dark stuff with that and um, economic disadvantages. And um, there's so many specific things that it's really hard to relate to somebody who hasn't experienced the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, I, I 100% like believe that that's my responsibility to do that. 
and I do feel extremely lucky to still be alive. Um, you know, a lot of people have the same thing and it was, uh, it was one just minor decision away from not coming back from that. Um, just happened to go somewhere else first and, uh, things like that. And definitely gives you a sense of, um, fragileness or, you know, ephemeralness of life or whatever. Absolutely. We have to live it. Um, now you also, uh, have a mastermind or you, you f help facilitate one. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you guys do? Yeah. So that, you know, early in my education after the overdose and after trying to get my stuff together, I found a nonprofit and they're called one life fully lived or shout out to them. Great people. Um, they started teaching me things and, uh, they were originally designed to help kids get out of poverty. That's how the whole thing started. And they this is still their mission. Um, not really a kid, but I was like, all right, well, yeah, I could probably, I could probably learn a lot. And I, and I did. And, um, you know, just like we mentioned, what is, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to give back to the community that has given me a lot. And, uh, so working with that nonprofit, we kind of started a new branch, um, for addiction recovery because i you know from seeing it firsthand from people i was incarcerated with people i was locked up with my friends uh or in rehab with you know friends uh there's a lot of basic skills missing uh, i'm not saying every single person but in general we were busy doing other stuff um or we didn't have the people to teach us so pretty much what I hit on was, you know, vision planning, relationships, goal setting, um, but the financial education, uh, for me, that's been massive. Um, I've been able to free up my time to, to do this or, you know, to make money, make money, um, without ringing up or something, you know what I mean? Like without, without, you know, some illicit manner. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's what that focuses on. Um, so far so good. Um, I'm trying not to be reckless with anything and, you know, there, there's that serious responsibility when you deal with addiction recovery and, uh, people's lives are at stake and things like that. But overall it's, uh, opening people up to new ideas and then the things that have worked for me and the, there's a girl named Amber Miller. She runs it with me. So, yeah. And she has also been on the show. So <laughs> she's okay. actually how yeah. we connected. So that's super awesome. Now, if people want to learn more about what, what uh, you do or they want to get a hold of you and ask any questions, how can they reach you? So you can reach me through that onelifefullylive.org um, or my personal website, just sterlingshrop.com. It's not amazing by any means, but it, it's got some interesting pictures at least. So Awesome. <laughs> well, Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. I always appreciate it because I know that when we learn to recover out loud and we share our stories, even if it can touch the life of one other person and get them off the streets and get them clean and sober, I know that matters. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. And to help get the show out there, I would appreciate it so much if you head on over to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review. It definitely helps the show get in front of more people so we can inspire more people 
and help people create a life so good for themselves that they never want to go back to their old way of living. I'll see you guys on the next episode. I have had the privilege to walk alongside of many people who have built their foundation and further enhanced their recovery. But unfortunately, there are still so many people who are still suffering that need our help. The Road Beyond Recovery podcast is a proud sponsor of Touched by Addiction. Addiction thrives in isolation and darkness. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. So if you or someone you know has been affected by addiction, there is help. At Touched by Addiction, we are dedicated to exposing addiction and ending the plague. Be that beacon of hope and light that so many desperately need. Each t-shirt or sweater you buy helps to get a struggling addict off the streets and into a year-long addiction treatment program. If you want to support the movement, go to www.touchedbyaddiction.com.